This is the Geopolitics and Empire podcast, and we speak once again with Sune Sorensen. He is the founder of Librarium Associates, which is a global research facility focused on big macroeconomic and geopolitical trends serving institutional and private investors. We'll be talking about Sune's new report, which examines the rise of China. The report is, is available for listeners to download and includes contributions from geopolitical heavyweights such as Harold Malmgren and Millennial Macro Research. Uh, and before we start the interview, I would like to remind listeners to subscribe to all our media channels and please leave us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to the podcast. There has been some funny business going on lately. Ten ratings from our Apple iTunes recently disappeared. Uh, hopefully that was just a glitch. But in any case, let me just read a recent review from a listener in the UK who says, quote, I have listened to this show for the past year or so, always brings diverse and expert insight, applying the lessons of history and its geopolitical fault lines to the most important matters in our world today, end quote. And all right, on to our guest. Welcome back, Sune. Thank you very much. Happy to be back with you. So this is going to be a bit of a lengthy uh, conversation and deep dive into China because it's a really good report and I'll share the link so people can uh, download and read it. I'd like to start with a quote from a recent interview by geopolitical expert Bruno Macias. Um, he did an interview and his analysis seems to go well with, with yours. Bruno believes it's important to think of China's rise in much broader, even generational terms. Belt and Road is the Chinese plan to build a new world order replacing the U.S.-led international system by building massive amounts of inf infrastructure across Eurasia and even throughout Africa. China is setting up a new power structure that will be unrivaled in the modern era. Whoever is able to build and control the infrastructure linking the two ends of Eurasia will rule the world. Uh, and more than any other project, it has come to symbolize a new phase in China's rise, the moment when Beijing embraces its role as a new superpower capable of remaking the world economy and attracting other countries to its own economic orbit and ideological model. And given its massive scale, it's not surprising that Bruno and other observers contend that Bree is simply too large, too vast, and too complex for any one person to understand. He doesn't even think senior Chinese officials who supposedly run this thing fully understand what it is and what's going on with it everywhere around the world, end quote. Uh, and so I will say that your 142-page report runs along similar lines, where in your intro you say it'll be a messy exploration of complex human systems in the context of many moving parts and a lot of noise, muddy waters, and very few detailed and reliable data points. You look at four key areas of the China dragon, trade, technology, the financial system, uh, and military. And you say that China thinks different to the West. It doesn't want to be part of its club as a subordinate, but wants to right the wrong of the century of humiliation, reestablish itself not only as the regional Asian player, but also a global player, and regain China's lost greatness. Above all, it wants absolute uh, sovereignty. So um, we can look at China's ambitions and its intentions according to what China thinks uh, and not what the West thinks. So uh, take us away, Sune. Absolutely. What an introduction. Um, yes, first of all, a big shout out to Dr. Harold Malmgren and Tim, the principal of Millennial Macro Research, who helped me do this report and, uh, you know, uh, have a big role to play in that. And it was also an interesting experience because obviously Dr. Malmgren is a boomer. I'm a generation X, uh, generation X and, and obviously Tim is a millennial. So it was kind of a cross-generational work uh, with people from all around the world, different walks of life, which is what we like to do here. Um, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, as you outlined it there, the report is, is kind of the uh, the end result of maybe a couple of years of really uh, 
exploring these different subjects around the uh, Chinese rise, uh, around the technology specifically, uh, trade, financial systems, and obviously the kind of military components of it. I've never actually done it all collectively, and I decided, you know, now was the time as, as kind of trends are, are pushing in, in a direction where this would be very relevant to have a, a better understanding of a sense of the path ahead. Um, and, you know, we've worked on this report for three or four months. We had a lot of good feedback, which is kind of what we try to, to achieve. And, you know, it's not that we are so interested in, I'm personally not so interested in telling people what to think. It's more about making people think. And certainly the responses um, we got for the report means that people have been provoked to, to come to some, some personal thoughts about it, maybe coming at it in a slightly different way. And we start out the report with kind of... Um, Highlighting some of the, the general errors, uh, you you know, we, we quote Mr. Hoyer, uh, who's uh, looking at structured analysis uh, for intelligence purposes, and he talks about this mirroring where I find that a lot of conversations in the West has been about seeing the world from a Western perspective um, based on our experiences, ambitions and hopes. Um, and again, I think that is going through business leaders, political leaders in the West, whereas China has seen the world from a different perspective and so has many other nations around the world uh, where they come with a, a different history, historic perspective. They have different interests uh, that are not necessarily fully aligned uh, with the Western uh, narrative. Um, and I think that's led to some misunderstandings and I think the kind of uh, sense of panic, if you like, uh, that has broken out the last couple of years in the Western world. Um, a lot of these things are deep-rooted stuff that has really been going on since the 90s, at least, and even further back, if you want to go back to sort of 100-year uh, century kind of perspective. Uh, you mentioned Bruno's work um, and his references there. I think, for example, the, I specifically did not use the BI as a segment in this because I actually think it, it's something much broader and deeper than just what, what is normally the headline associated with it and the narrative that surrounds it. Um, I think you can go back to the 1990s. Um, and I think what I try and do, or we're working on in the report, is really trying to understand China's push uh, to, first of all, become self-sustained uh, and from there to build a system, uh, build around itself and its uh, interests and um, ambitions. Um, and from there, you know, to be what it sees itself as its rightful position at the center of Asia, the uh, Eastern Hemisphere, and obviously with that, a broader role in the world. Um, so that's kind of the scope of the report. Um, as I said, there's four different uh, key areas that we go into, and we can obviously go into those a bit more. So, what, I mean, we can go a little bit linearly or chronologically through your report. And some of the first thing you talk about is food security, uh, which is important for every country, including superpower. And you, you write about how China's food production has jumped and the level of malnourishment of the population has greatly declined, I think, from something like 23%. Uh, and you mentioned it went down to 8%. Uh, but it's still not enough because there's a huge population. It's still not enough, as you say, going forward uh, in terms of sustainability. And you write that China's food solution looks to be the Eurasian uh, heartland, including uh, the Arctic. Uh, and I know I'm, I'm currently living in Kazakhstan and there was there were a lot of problems when the Kazakh government wanted to lease some land to China, which I assume would be used for growing food. And the Kazakh population pushed back against that. We'll see where that goes in the future. So what are some key takeaways, uh, for example, on China and food? 
Yeah, so again, obviously, when we looked at the trade segment, uh, obviously well documented them as an export power and how their rise have come on the back of being, you know, a trading nation. And they're now the premier trading nation in the world, which is what they've achieved in three or four decades. Um, but obviously, when you look internally and you look at some of the uh, motivations of the Chinese leadership, obviously, they have this kind of focus on stability, uh, which is what and, and their kind of um, role as, as a leader, as a leadership group uh, relies largely on them. They're delivering uh, economic growth and obviously um, a stable uh, and, and better and better society or reality for its population. Um, so fresh food and water uh, is a key component of that. If you look at the old saying, a hungry man is an angry man. And, and obviously from leadership, what they don't want is a lot of angry people running around the streets. Um, so that brings you to probably priority number one, really, um, which is obviously the supply of food and fresh water. In the report, we kind of go really into the granular aspects of this, of how they actually managed to internally secure a lot of this in terms of grains, in terms of a lot of key components of, of actually being able to feed their own population and at the same time not just you know getting by but actually you know as we say moving people out of poverty on a large scale and into a better dietary habits and, and solutions um, th then we look at the a lot of where those answers are coming from um, and obviously they are trying to not become too reliant on any one block that's been one of the status quo statements out of any chinese leadership there's a lot of this thing about it's all sea driving this change but in fact if you go back to deng xiaoping in the 80s he talks about the, pretty much the same things about not being reliant on the world but taking what is required and building upon it a, a chinese system um, and again in, in food and, and and fresh water which kind of is is obviously ingrained in each other because agriculture requires a lot of fresh water um you know eurasia is the answer to them. It takes it away from the sea lanes, uh, mainly the nations in there, uh, more broadly aligned with China's interest than the US, for example, historically. Um, and obviously, you have this huge part of that, which is Russia, which we also look more specifically into. Uh, Kazakhstan, as you mentioned, another big component in that. And it also goes, it spills over into the energy space, which is perhaps after the food and fresh water, one of the key components that China wants to have control over in order to control its own destiny. Um, so Eurasia as a whole has obviously vast, vast agricultural spaces. Large part of Russia's agricultural heartland has actually been abandoned because of lack of investment uh, over you know three or four decades. Uh, and that's coming and being turned around and you're seeing more Chinese investment in that co-investment in that um, but as you mentioned in Kazakhstan there's obviously going to be pushback this thing is not something that is just going to flow uh, steadily ahead of them in a perfect line there's going to be ups and downs and there's going to be pushback but if you look at longer term trends um, these are, are sparsely populated parts of the world with ma massive resources um, and a need for infrastructure, a need of investment um, and economic opportunity for their populations. And, you know, the dragon on, on the coast is the answer. Um, and and they are going to have to find some accommodations, whether that is uh, in a co-beneficial um, uh, exchange or whether that becomes more weighted to one or the other um, time will tell but certainly the answers are there the solutions are there and more importantly from the report you know it's all very well to speak about theoretics but uh, theoretical but the reality is that what we've done looking at the last four decades is that there is actually very much what we see is a strategy there's decisions being made at the center of it and there's actually follow through so you're seeing the investment you're seeing the output growing out of it you're seeing the trade come out of it um if you look at um the kind of bri link uh you know it's very clear you know the the exports are coming uh, both ways uh raw materials are coming out and and you know finished goods at a higher and higher degree of technology uh, whether that's your 
your 5G or other you know systems are being uh, sold widely throughout the region. Um, so China is, is managing to create export markets for higher and higher technology goods, and they're managing to secure the raw materials they need. And all right, let's. You mentioned one of the the next important factors was energy and oil. You write in the report, China is the largest oil importer, uh, and it's also pressing countries to trade oil in national currencies uh, instead of the dollar, which is a trend, uh, anyways. Uh, you write that shifting just a part of global oil trade into yuan could be potentially huge. Uh, and so, you know, there are advantages and disadvantages here for tr- China being the largest oil importer. Um, and uh, so, I mean, what are your thoughts on energy and oil? Yeah, so energy is an interesting one. It's one of the areas that I covered a lot in terms of the, the commodities around in, in, in that space and obviously the technologies around it uh, in the renewable space. So it's actually an interesting, I use it in the report. It's kind of a one sort of path to look at in terms of setting out strategy, trial and error around the world and building out new strategies and, and this continued five-year plan building upon the next one and actually having some follow-through. Um, so if you go back to the 90s, China's first kind of going out for to try and to secure energy resources was really one where they went and said, OK, we can't rely on, on big Western oil companies or the traditional big players in the Middle East. So we are looking for a vacuum where we can go out and, and perhaps secure our energy destiny. Um, they made a lot of mistakes in that process. They ended up in places what we call rogue nations at the time, you know, the Sudans, uh, the Venezuela, which is still playing out today um, and across Africa and places where there was no real infrastructure, some of the riskier parts of the Middle East and, and Iran before the actual uh, JCPO deal, um, most of that ended up being a waste of money and hasn't really delivered. So when uh, President Xi came into power, he kind of looked at what had been going on for the decade before in that space and realizing that they hadn't really come any much closer to, to any real solutions of, of securing their destiny in terms of being able to secure supplies of energy. So they went in a different direction. They focused on renewables, which was a new industry where they felt they could build pretty much uh, at the nexus of two major trends, one in transportation going to electrical vehicles and one in terms of renewable energy being uh, a better uh, supply source Um, and both of them relying heavily on technology. And again, they wanted to be technology leaders, so links and floats over into the technology space. Um, But what they did was a comprehensive thing, leveraging what they have a strength, which is this full government, full everything, military, uh, industry um, approach to things. Uh, they went out and secured the raw materials with deals or by you know, lending uh, to nations to develop their resources, uh, whether that's in lithium or in any of the other kind of energy metals. And it also goes into natural gas, oil, etc. So the same strategy plays there. Um, but they build up the full into the chain. They build up the technology, whether it's battery technology, where they're hugely dominant now. Um, they secure the lithium, the processing of it, and, and all the kind of strategic raw materials around it. Um, and, you know, they build out this renewable industry where they're now a leader across both uh, the transportation segment of it and the renewable energy largely. Um, and they, at the same time, realized, obviously, we need natural gas and oil. Uh, we need uh, uranium. We need to build out all these industries. So, again, the answer for them largely lied in, in the Eurasian heartland and with Russia specifically. Um, so again, there they avoid the sea lanes, which has been very much in the news with the Iran situation at the moment. Um, they have it inland, um, and they're building pipelines through. Uh, they're developing large parts of Siberia. Uh, they're pushing into the Arctic, which you mentioned about, and obviously they have huge deals with, for example, Kazakhstan and other nations in Eurasia uh, for the supply of, of uh, oil and gas. 
Um, and again, a lot of this is done via loans. Uh, the Chinese companies building infrastructure, providing the, the steel, the metal, etc. for it. And often it's linked with refineries, uh, chemical production, and building basically an economy around these places, which is real value for the countries across Eurasia, um, and obviously real uh, strategic value and economic value for China. So um, again, it's not going to be a perfect run, but you can really see again there that they have set it on a strategy. They run three or four decades of it. They made some mistakes. They learned from them and they build it back out again. And that again is something that repeats throughout the areas we covered in the report. What about the financial now? I think uh, briefly last time we did an inter interview, we discussed uh, U.S. dollar world reserve. Uh, and in this report, you briefly mentioned how, you know, there's like two, two extremes to this where some people have this alarmist view that the U.S. dollar reserve won't last uh, much longer, while others uh, have a more moderate view, which where it will go on uh, still for decades. Uh, and so we now we see uh, the internationalization uh, of the yuan, and financially, China is establishing all this uh, infrastructure regionally and globally. You know, alternatives to SWIFT, uh, all these um, infrastructure banks uh, giving loans. Uh, so they're building this complete um, global infrastructure. So what, what's your take on? the financial aspect of China's rise. Yeah, so again, out of the four areas we covered, the financial system, I think naturally, if you're going to do it right, would have to be the the fourth uh, the fourth layer that is going to expand. So again, if you just go out and build any, as we can see all around the world, there's people who've been building so-called financial hubs. You know, it was kind of the buzzword for a while. And, you know, you can build the infrastructure. It doesn't mean people will come or the money will flow. <laughs> so for China, I think they've, probably realized that and they have themselves indeed done a lot of the financial hub uh, bus uh, kind of movements and it hasn't really done a lot early on and so again what they've done is build out the trade system and their foreign direct investment systems and they've done it very conservatively and pretty slowly so they're building up the infrastructure for this changeover because naturally you know if you look historically when you have a major tipping point towards trade being directed from one place to another you're becoming a major trading nation indeed the number one if you are a major foreign direct investment player across areas where you're not facing a lot of competition so you can look at africa as one of the earlier places you can look at parts of south america and you can look at eurasia suddenly you have you know huge swaths of the global population uh, in the system um though now it's dollar-based euro-based um, it's based, has been historically based around some of the infrastructure like SWIFT or indeed financial markets in the West um, or in Hong Kong, which is kind of a medium in between. Um, but slowly they've built out the infrastructure. They have their own solutions so that gradually once this pendulum has swung in the trade and the foreign direct investment space, it's becoming supported or at least could be supported by an infrastructure that is increasingly being built out. Um, then I think the final push you look at for financial uh, change, it happened to the U.S. When the U.S. took over from Europe, it was a long, gradual process. Um, and eventually the infrastructure was built out. And then you need two things. You need a catalyst uh, for people to be pushed in that direction, whether that's the opportunity or whether it's risk in other parts. And secondly, you need that trust that comes with seeing it actually work. Um, and those two are the last steps. And again, I think that's where we are kind of leaning in towards perhaps uh, in terms of the reserve currency aspect i think that that is where people are putting the pyramid upside down because literally that would be the last the final step i don't think china has any direct interest in that right now what they have an interest in is to be able to secure the commodities the raw materials we just talked about the energy the food etc in a currency that they can, can control so they are not uh, sitting under that double-edged sword of, of the mighty dollar 
uh, that can be used to both create prosperity, but also can cut them in half if, if, if people are not following instructions. Um, and I'm sure that's a lesson they've learned. You can see it again, it's at an early stage, but the more, again, hard to get hard figures because that's not shared, or if it's shared, it's from 2012 or something like this. But if you're seeing many of the deals being done with Russia in Eurasia, uh, certainly in Africa, um, and in some South American companies, uh, countries, it is very much uh, based on yuan or euros or something in between where you may have loans in dollars that can be paid back or converted in multiple currencies. Um, and, you know, they're building the infrastructure. I think the, the whole focus on the reserve currency is looking at it the wrong way. What you want to look at first, logically, is for any country to be truly sovereign. It has to be able to control payment of the key inputs that sustains it as a nation. And that is what they've been doing over the last couple of decades with some success, still a lot more work to be done. And we can segue, this is a nice transition to technology where uh, a lot of the, your report deals with this issue of technology. Uh, I was recently reading uh, Kai-Fu Lee's AI superpower. He was the former head of Google uh, China and he's, um, he, he's a very important figure. And I'm just, just from reading his book, it seems technologically in many ways, China has uh, already won. You write about, and he talks about the, this leapfrogging, um, in terms of, you know, research, development, technology, innovation. China has advanced greatly their intellectual property, research and development, innovation. Uh, you give one example of the increase in the use of apps for payment, not just in China, but along, uh, the new silk road and something interesting you mentioned that huawei has been called the east india company of the current imperial cycle so there's a lot of talk lot to talk about regarding the technological uh, aspect from c civilian purposes and economic to the military and uh, so what are your thoughts on china tech uh, as well as 5g and huawei where we're always bombarded with these headlines about 5g and, and huawei which are often sensational so what's your take there yeah, so again, if you go back and take a step back out of it, I think there's an ancient Chinese proverb which says, the man who moves a mountain begins by carrying away small stones. And again, if you apply that uh, to the four different categories, in some of them, and I would say trade and technology, they pretty much in the last four decades carried away the mountain and built it elsewhere. I think in, tech, in financial system-wise, they're probably further behind in terms of carrying away these tiny rocks of, 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 of creating real change and moving the mountain. Um, and again, with the military, it becomes a bit more complicated because you can see the strategic level, um, but you can't see most things are confidential or they haven't really been tested probably by design. But going back to the technology, it is, as you mentioned, one of the areas where I feel that they made a lot of headway. There's still some gaps, um, semiconductors being one of them, which is their biggest import. Um, but they've leapfrogged. They've gotten out ahead in certain. You talk about 5G. We talked about renewable and uh, battery technology, for example. Um, you can talk about uh, fast uh, rails or, or you can talk about a number of different areas within technology, AI, um, where they have made real progress. And you would argue that they are certainly well ahead of Europe and in catching up with the US or close to, to being, uh, you know, at the same level. Um, so... Yeah, I think with technology, I think the other thing that we kind of got to start with a little bit again is, is taking maybe a longer view uh, to get a more balanced sense or perspective of things. There's a lot of hysteric uh, uh, talk about, you know, how China got ahead, how China suddenly, you know, people have sort of realized that China is suddenly this dominant uh, nation and it shouldn't really be a surprise to anyone who, who kind of watched it uh, more more thoroughly. Um, you know, there's focus on how China has cheated uh, its way to technological advancement uh, for its economy, for its military. 
Um, and certainly they have applied uh, both uh, by all means necessary, if you like, uh, ways of doing this, but also just standard uh, approaches, like actually buying and paying for IP transfers or buying out companies. Um, but if you look at the, if you just look through the prism of the last 70 years, it's easy to deduct um, that the US has been the most innovative uh, and dynamic, a dynamic technology hub and, you know, as such, it could follow that everyone else is copying uh, what they've been doing, their processes, individual pieces of technology. And, you know, at best, they're kind of free riders or at worst, they're, you know, thieves. Um, ha- however, if, if you look at uh, the U.S. technological exceptionalism, it was built on knowledge diffusion uh, and IP coming from Europe. Uh, people emigrating from Europe uh, after the Second World War, uh, even earlier from the industrialization out of England, moving across the pond. Um, and, you know, Europe before that obviously acquired many of the key building blocks from the Middle East, from the old uh, Greece, uh, from China um, and Asia. Um, and again, uh, you know, we used the example in, in the report about how, you know, the rapid diffusion of ideas came really from uh, the famed Gutenberg printing press in the 1500s in Europe. And that was pretty much premised on, on things coming out of China. Uh, printing was invented in China in the 8th century AD. Uh, movable type printing in the 11th century and paper was introduced in the 2nd century AD and then diffused across you know, the Middle East and into Europe. Uh, Europe took these things, applied them. Um, evolved them and there was dispersion and developments they used for applied mathematics double entry bookkeeping uh, cashless payment systems financial markets uh, the spreading just by able to have printed books uh, of scientific fact and inquiry um, so you know a lot of the, the foundations for what happened was built you know through a mix uh, of different inputs for over you know five six hundred years thousand years uh, throughout the, the globe um, that we've had a hundred years where let's say one part have been more dominant than the other you know it's easy to just take that alone and say okay surely they stole these things but if you're thinking a bit longer term and, and considering these aspects you can see from China's perspective they're saying okay well you know we felt that a hundred years you know whatever in, under the opium wars our civilization was destroyed everything was taken away from us we you know we had our own period of chaos and we've been basically trying to fast track our own rise but a lot of the things that allowed you know gunpowder came out of china that allowed uh, you know european militaries first and then the u.s military to be dominant around the world um you know came from us so why shouldn't we grab some ideas around the place that you guys have managed to do while you were on top um and if you look at it obviously individual company wise you know whether it's hacking and stealing ideas that is a crime it should be pursued but in bigger picture of things we're all standing on the shoulders of giants, um, and maybe that should be considered when people are getting into some hysterics around the kind of IP transfer. Um, but as you point out, again, the R&D expenditure, the kind of uh, hybrid approach of Chinese government has led to real advances um, and some leapfrogging. And again, uh, what happens uh, for um, the military technology you know, is used for civilian purposes and likewise the other way around. Um, so that's an interesting one to look at. Well, let's look at the the military aspect, <laughs> and I wanted to read two uh, quotes. And um, by the way, I mean I, I love your quotes. You include so many quotes um, in your reports. Uh, and I, I guess that's why you're called uh, Librarian Associates, and so and you're the, you're the AKA librarian. So um, here's a that's true. <laughs> here's a quote from Humphrey Hawksley uh, in his book Asian Waters, uh, where you quote him saying, "Quote." 
With its military, China plans to ease American supremacy from the Pacific, match Russia's defense capabilities, and replace the U.S. security umbrella with a Chinese one. With its science, it intends to lead in everything from space exploration, nuclear energy, and environmental technology to combat climate change. For China, none of this ambition is seen as new. It's merely a return to its rightful position. This is not an American-style spearing of a ribeye steak. This is the Middle Kingdom with its millennia of experience, understanding the subtleties of spices and sauces of seafood and vegetables, culture, politics, and government. This is how it was before. Centuries earlier, China's technological and economic power had dwarfed that of Europe's, end quote, uh, which is kind of what you were just mentioning. And some of the other stuff in the report you talk about, Xi Jinping has sought a 21st century style military industrial complex with Chinese characteristics, uh, something that kind of surprised me. You wrote about how an example of how China's global navigation system can be integrated with um, with Russia's to challenge American GPS. China's you go in depth on on the na- uh, maritime aspect as well. China's navy, how it's rapidly uh, catching up, and th- you know this reminds me of the scenario before World War One when Germany was developing its navy rapidly to challenge uh, Britain, uh, and you know you also talk about South China Sea how they're establishing their first line of homeland defense. And one more quote from Robert Kaplan, which you include, which is very good from a speech from the German German Marshall Fund he gave, I think, last year. China is fighting a war with the U.S. in the South China Sea. It's just that the Americans don't completely realize it because the Chinese method of war is to win without ever having to fight. The last thing the Chinese want to do is have a shooting match with the U.S. Navy because they will lose. They will not lose in a generation. Uh, they may not lose in a generation at the rate they're going, but they will lose now. So it's a series of little micro steps. Take an island here, build a runway there, do nothing for six months, then send an oil rig into disputed waters. Uh, after there are international complaints, withdraw the oil rig and take another island. It's a very subtle strategy where any reaction makes it seem like you're overreacting. So in your report, you talk about Chinese conventional forces, uh, Chinese nukes, how the Chinese uh, didn't think it was wise to invest a lot of money uh, in nukes to match uh, America, but rather just to make enough uh, to serve as a deterrent. Um, and you talk about the string of pearls. Uh, and so, you know, take us uh, to on a tour through the military aspect. Yeah, so I think obviously once you have the other four com- or the other three components that we discussed being pushed out to a certain level, you're going to push up against something, and in this case, the U.S. <laughs> so obviously then that leads into the military, which again, uh, from the Chinese perspective, and as you alluded to a little bit with Mr. Kaplan's excellent, uh, insightful uh, quote there, um, China believes in not having to fight an outright war in the Western terms of kinetic, you know, Navy on Navy, or everyone lines up on a big field and starts shooting at each other has not really been historically their way of of getting things done. Um, So, you know, if you look at just the pure why we are coming into a space where, you know, certainly the military aspect was important to consider, there is a conflict between the U.S. and China that involves fundamental issues of power. You know, China is unwilling to accept U.S. leadership or hegemony in in the world going forward as it's grown, and it doesn't historically see itself as a secondary power. Um, the U.S. is unwilling to accept Chinese leadership or hegemony in Asia because then that brushes up against their established interests there. So there's a clear emergence um, with China as a dominant regional power in Asia. And, and as I said, it challenges U.S. interests. So the underlying cause of friction between the U.S. and China is fundamental and inherent. Um, so its core is a difference over balance of power, uh, first in Asia and then in the world. So there's no real easy solution. So there's no real solutions to it. Um, so then it's what path 
uh, is taken. And again, if we again look at Chinese strategy over, let's say, three or four decades, which we kind of consider in the report to get a comprehensive picture of it, um, you know, they've they basically looked again at lessons from certainly the Soviet Union, U.S. Cold War, uh, and flashes of hot war here and there. Uh, they looked at things in the Middle East, where the U.S. has obviously more recently been engaged, and they come to some conclusions, some of them being that there is battles that are just not worth fighting at all. Um, you know, it's this thing about, uh, I think it's uh, Sun Tzu quote, is avoid the solid or the areas of strength and strike at the weak. And again, you can look at that in terms of Navy, for example. So, you know, the U.S. is so far ahead in being able to project power on, on what you call the blue oceans or out in, in open areas around the world. Um, and again, if you look at nuclear, I mean, <laughs> I think uh, between the U.S. and um, and Russia, they have, or the old Soviet Union and Russia, they have like 90, almost 90 percent of all nuclear uh, weapons. So you could either go out and spend billions and billions and billions on trying to build out your fleet of, of carriers uh, in the, for the Navy and try and challenge the U.S. in open seas. So you could go out and try and, and catch up nuclear wise. Um, China decided to go a different route, I believe, based on what we studied over the last three or four decades. They went for the unconventional, they went for deterrence in the areas where they saw strength. Um, so again, if you look at the South China Sea, I think it's something that gets a lot of coverage. I don't actually think China, beyond trying to just protect their inner layer so that they can basically, um, for now, at least seal off uh, an access route to to put pressure on China. Um, they've done that, obviously, as we talked about food trade and trying to go through the heartland Eurasia as opposed to bringing things in by sea. That's still a work in pro progress. Um, in terms of defending their coastline and, and making it uh, so difficult, uh, in terms of the deterrence to consider an attack on, on Chinese mainland through the, the South China Sea. They obviously build the islands. There's a lot of progress in terms of building out their submarine fleets. And we talk a lot about um, the drone aspects of uh, sea, smart sea mines uh, and various uh, tools to basically offset U.S. sea power, at least within the coastal region of China. Um, but I think where they said here are areas where we can push back, where we can get ahead and where we can leapfrog, you go into the unconventional space and um, you see some of the strategic aspects that uh, Mr. Kaplan alludes to. I think in the um, in the report we quote um, Mr. Matza, who's uh, at the U.S. Army War College. Um, basically, he writes for the Advancing Strategic Thought series, um, and he has a report a report that came out, the Gray Zone: uh, Understanding a Changing Area Era of Conflict. Um, and you know, he says, you know, the to quote him directly, on you know, he says that. Um, the Great Zone Warfare is about being unwilling to risk major escalation without right military adventurism. Uh, the actors are employing sequences of gradual steps to secure strategic leverage, leverage uh, and the efforts remain below the threshold of what would generally would generate a powerful U.S. international response, but nonetheless a forceful and deliberate, calculated to gain measurable traction over time. And in one important sense, they are very classic, like using again the Kaplan quote, salami slicing strategies. Uh, fortified with a range of emerging gray area and unconventional techniques from cyber attacks to information campaigns to energy diplomacy 
their maneuver in the ambiguous no man's land between peace and war, reflecting the sort of aggressive, persistent, determined campaigns characteristics of warfare, but without the overt use of military force. As such, gray zone conflicts is the employment of strategic gradualism, and gray zone campaigns are designed to unfold over time rather than to gain the decisive result all at once. And again, it plays into some of the larger Asian kind of perspectives on strategy. Uh, we can talk about the game of Go, which is often used as a kind of a way to, to look at differences in thinking. There's uh, actually a Japanese gentleman, Sakata Ayo, who's uh, the grandmaster. Um, he says, Go is not about winning through brilliant and spectacular moves. It's about not losing through bad moves. And there's another old uh, Chinese saying is you can fight a war for a long time or you can make your nation strong. You cannot do both. And again, the U.S. actually used to adhere to this and that Europe kind of overextended itself and then came in on the back of it. Uh, they kind of lost track of that in Middle Eastern uh, wars in, in the last couple of decades while China sat and watched that and probably realized there was a window of opportunity where they could build out their military, they could build out their economic power. And they've done so. So. We come to a stage now where, you know, it's a quote, another great thinker, George Washington. Uh, it is the very nature of power that it will expand until it's checked by an opposite power. And I think we come to a stage now where the U.S. and parts of the Western world has kind of awoken to the reality that um, there is uh, an opposite power to be checked. Um, and the format it's going to be going in. I think China's decision, or if you look at their strategic moves, uh, is very much one of non-confrontation, but for them to try and win without having to fight a, a conventional war. Um, but time will tell who comes out ahead and whether China's long game of deterrence and kind of establishing uh, strategic advantages across economic, technological and military spheres will enable them to win without having to fight in a traditional sense. Um, or if this increased friction uh, leads to a predictable flare-up in one of the many, many fire-prone areas building up in the global system, uh, from which a broader fire can catch on and engulf a larger section of the world. Uh, we're not short on accelerants, and there's pretty much few responsible uh, players manning the, the firewatch duties as we speak. So certainly to watch, but I think in the military space, China's chosen to go into the unconventional. They've chosen to match where real strength is with deterrence at a minimum level, and they try to kind of come at it from a different perspective. So again, we talked a little bit about some of the unconventional in our last conversation, but again, if you're looking at using things like hacking, which we go into quite in depth, uh, trying to use electronic weapons, hypersonic weapons, um, and, and other tools to kind of offset traditional U.S. power uh, projection, uh, they certainly made some progress with that. But as I said, it is an area where we're talking strategically, but it's hard to get to the actual detail of what is actual capabilities because it's confidential mainly, and uh, number two, because they haven't really been tested. So we don't really know uh, how comprehensive uh, their advantages are in some of these areas. Yeah, you see, I wasn't joking uh, in your ability and use of quotes, but <laughs> as you as you've described all of this, I don't know if people remember if you remember that great uh, old famous Microsoft video game Age of Empires. It really looks a lot like that Age of Empires game where you know the the player the the, the nation goes rushes out to get the base core resources, establish themselves um, self-sufficiency in the resources, and then they build up a wall uh, and key points, and, and then they advance further. So this is really like a, a real-world uh, live game of Age of Empires. Uh, are there What other key points um, strike out to you, things that we should know based on the time you spent developing the, the report? 
I think it's important just that I think there's just as most things there's just so much noise and specifically on the subject right now I think while I was doing the report the last two or three months I pretty much switched on from day to day actually a timid millennial was the guy who was kind of keeping manning the ship on a daily basis and sending me and kind of filtering but I didn't really want to have the noise I wanted to step back and look at three or four decades of development uh, I wanted to take the time to get you know that sort of long range perspective on things and actually try and go beyond just you know a lot of the commentary you see out there today um what across this area is kind of like uh, the the sort of u.s version of the debate team uh, kind of thing where it's all about having a quick theoretical response versus an actual strategy with nuance uh, pros and cons uh, in real terms and actually laying out some kind of strategy that, and solutions to any of these things so the report was really about trying to take a step back from that so again some of the conclusions that we, we kind of draw down at the end or the kind of thought from the journey as we like to call it you know it is that the pendulum of time is on the move you know again these are not new things a lot of the trends we talk about in terms of the four key areas over the last four decades they're playing out through different leaderships in China, through different leaderships in the West, um, through different times of good times, bad times. Um, but even if you take a longer step back, you know, and you look just at this kind of uh, civilizational aspect uh, to to it, um, because for the last 70 years, civilization has been ma- meaning mainly to most people that you will see in certainly the media today, Western civilization. But, you know, you think about civilizations as different parts of the world who have the kind of nucleus to build out something sustainable and significant over long periods of history, China being one of those regions. Um, but if you look at like 1900, for example, you know, the Westerners, they composed like roughly around 30% of the world's population, what we call Westerners. The government ruled about, let's say, 45% of the population, and then around uh, 48% in 1920, uh, which is obviously the kind of high points of Western uh, kind of imperialism. Um, you know, in 1993, except for Hong Kong and a few small imperial remnants, uh, Western governments ruled no more, no one but Westerners. And Westerners amounted to slightly over 13% of humanity, uh, which is due to drop back to around 10% by 2025. So quantitatively speaking, the West is consti- constituted a steadily declining minority of the world population. Uh, the Western share of global economic output also may have peaked in the 1920s and has clearly been declining since World War II. Um, if you look at like, you know, China, you know, in, in 1750, it accounted for almost one third of uh, the manufacturing output, China was around the quarter and the West was less than the fifth of the world manufacturing output. By 1830, the West pulled slightly ahead of China and then we had the real spurt beginning in the mid 1900s. Um, Western share rose dramatically, peaking in, I think, according to some data, uh, in 1928 to around 84 percent. But by 1980, the West was back down to around 57 percent. Um, and Asia was obviously on the rise there. And then we've seen this last three or four decades with Japan, South Korea, the Asian Tigers, and obviously China being the major engine behind it, uh, pushing the pendulum back into the other direction. So we shouldn't really be surprised that we have these underlying changes. um, And along with that comes a whole host of side effects. And some of them are the ones we see playing out in the political spectrum right now. They're the ones playing out in technology and trade and financial markets and the military components of it. Um, and these things are not going away. This is a major trend. 
um, and there is no, you know, uh, in the game of chess, once you have a chess mate, the game is over. But in the game of life, as you call it, the game between civilizations, as you referred to, uh, there is no chess mate. There is only the game continues. You may have a setback, but these major blocks of civilizational powers, they're going to be around. Um, if they're not around, then you have even bigger problems. If they were to implode into chaos, uh, then, uh, you know, that would be an even bigger problem than China's rise, potentially. What might you say would be one of China's weakest uh, points? So again, I mean, obviously, short term, you can look at the financial system, which I think is the weaker of the four. I think that's probably where you might be likely to see some blow up. Um, but I think as with any major economy, uh, which has its own fiat currency and kind of perpetual debt uh, <laughs> levels uh, or systems, uh, it'll mop up the mess. It, it may not be pretty, but they will get through sort of minor issues. So you can look at the financial place uh, system. I think that's perhaps an area to look at. But if you look at longer term um, or if you look at just sort of um, fundamental um, weaknesses, um, I would look at what is actually one of the perceived sources of power, which is the centralization of power. Um, that can also be a double-edged sword. So, you know, I think, in again, to go back to, to the quotes in the report, um, we are looking, we look through um, this aspect through the Ariel uh, and the Durant um, book, um, the, uh, the World History. Um, and they talk about how uh, the lessons of history, it's called, to be fair, that's a great book, by the way. If people haven't read it, they should go get it. Um, they talk about how... Um, Power always centralizes. Power, they say power naturally converges to a center, for it is ineffective when divided, diluted, and spread. And they go on to highlight uh, the prevailing form of government in history has been monarchy, with the following observation. If we were to judge forms of government uh, from their prevalence and duration in history, we should have to give the trophy to monarchy. Democracies, by contrast, have been hectic interludes. And they then talk about some of the best uh, systems uh, where this has functioned. And they go looking at the Roman Empire and they talk about what they call adoptive monarchy, uh, where the emperor transmitted his authority not to his offspring, but to his ablest man he could find. He would adopt this man as his son. At that time, it was man because that's how they ran stuff um, and trained him in the functions of government and gradually surrendered to him the reins of power. Um, they then go on to show how that came to an end in the Roman uh, period with Marcus Aurelius, who died without a clear succession plan to the ablest man and was succeeded by his own son, Commodus, uh, who, as they so eloquently surmised, uh, soon chaos was king. Um, again, looked like China had taken on some of these lessons because they had the system, certainly in the last since Mao, of you know every 10 years handing over the reins uh, to someone chosen and supposedly very capable who had kind of been nurtured to take on the position. Um, and what we highlight in the report is the fact that C, uh, whether uh, it is to believe that it was just uh, more in in terms of headlines or boy, whether it's something more deep lying, he got rid of the system of, of succession, which is the weakest point of any dictatorship or any centralized power, is that period of succession um, where it's all about handing over to someone capable. And again, I think with China, you could look at that as a real weakness. The more you concentrate power, the more you get the appearance of control. But often, um, you know, the power is if not uh, validated in real results for the larger population, it will be challenged and questioned and pressure will build up below the surface. Um, and if you have a society like China, which is hugely uh, with surveillance, with all kind of measures of uh, control built into the system, 
um, that can explode pretty quickly if things don't go to plan. Um, and it may appear all, all is good and all is calm, um, but below the surface, things could be brewing up. And again, you're looking at the centralized power thing. And if you go into the closest circles of power in China, um, certainly C has gotten to power. He has uh, stepped on a few toes to get there, and he's cleaned out a lot of competition. But China is a big place. There's a lot of powerful families, a lot of powerful interests, and you could see some kind of uh, palace intrigue, if you like, um, which could lead to either someone either competent coming in and taking over or someone not so competent coming in and taking over. So that would be one of the points of weakness that we refer in the report. Do you think the recent unrest that we've seen in, in Hong Kong is organic, uh, U.S. interference, or both? Well, I have no direct insight in but I've done quite a bit of work on Hong Kong and have some good good contacts, both who work in the region and, and people who have done much more work on the space than me. I think Hong Kong is an interesting one. We cover it a bit in the financial sector because it has been the gateway in uh, for money flowing into China. It has been a way for Chinese companies from the mainland to raise capital. And it has been a conduit for that. It's also been a conduit for money leaking out of the system, which has then been clamped down upon. Um, you also seen, uh, obviously, you're supposed to have this two system, uh, or two, yeah, two different systems, um, but one nation. But again, obviously, China with their gradual process seems to have been encroaching more and more on this. And I'm not surprised that you're seeing um, some confrontations and some upheaval uh, on the back of this, because you have this uh, the Great Bay Area project, for example, which is supposed to encapsulate Shenzhen, Hong Kong, the whole area around it, and, and create this huge area of technological development, finance, and what have you, lots of infrastructure connecting Hong Kong to the mainland. And you could kind of see it as a gradual way of basically taking Hong Kong, making it less relevant by moving a lot of the finance to uh, Shanghai, for example, uh, or Shenzhen, and slowly basically encroaching on, on this liberty that was supposed to be there. Um, I think that was the plan. I think perhaps they pushed it a bit too far too quickly. And, you know, people are kind of upset about it. I don't really know you know, who started it or whether there's been outside influence. Um, but I think, again, it's an organic thing that the the bigger aims, the longer-term objectives of China's central control uh, is not really conductive with Hong Kong sitting, uh, being kind of a Western uh, sort of hybrid uh, at some stage. They will either replace it completely and encapsulate it into it, or it will find some way of balancing between the two. I would probably suggest that they felt maybe they pushed a bit too hard and they're more likely to avoid full-on confrontation in, under the spotlights of the world, and they will pull back a bit, and then they will come back at it again another way, a bit like the, uh, the South China Sea uh, reference to Mr. Kaplan's outline of strategy. All right, any any final thoughts? Should uh, Should we go and... Uh, build bunkers in preparation for World War III with China? Should we go and invest in, in, in China as this you know, new uh, superpower? What are your, some of your final thoughts to leave us with? Yeah, so again, it's our last conversation. I don't, if we need the bunkers, then we're not going to need the bunkers because they're not going to do much in a in real full-on escalation of things. So I doubt that will happen. I think it's very interesting to watch all of this. And I think you, what you should really be watching is perhaps, you know, obviously this is a China-focused report. But we do measure against the U.S. because they are the dominant power in most of these places. Um, but, you know, again, when you look at um, and these kind of aspects, you can see obviously China has made some gains across these areas. 
but alongside them, um, so has U.S. major corporations. So the biggest winners, perhaps, of the last sort of 70 years has been U.S. large corporations, um, certainly China, other emerging economies, commodity producers who kind of been riding this wave upwards of expansion. Um, and obviously the consumer at large around the world has been able to buy cheap goods. And, uh, you know, people have lives that, you know, my grandparents could only dream of in terms of having multiple cars and big screen TVs and, you know, cheap clothes for their kids and all these kind of areas. So that's been some of the strengths. If we're about to revise this and go the other direction, which is what some people on in some parts of the uh, the kind of uh, communications on this are shouting for, then all of that comes into question. So again, the question becomes, if you believe that this is a very powerful constituency, let's say large corporate interest, for example, let's say some of the major economies that are export oriented, whether that's Germany and whether that's Japan, obviously China and, and the US, because they are very dominant in IP and services um, and financial services. Um, so then you've got to ask the question, will this very powerful constituency allow for this to go anything beyond some headlines, some slight renegotiations of terms and will they actually allow it to be this cold war that people talk about this kind of complete bifurcation of, of the world systems uh, as it is i would look, watch that i would look at the u.s elections in 2020 with great interest um, because i think you're going to see these uh, there's going to be um, an expression of um, the interest of these you see it already today i mean it's quite interesting you saw with the huawei story you've seen major U.S. corporation actually lobbying on behalf of Huawei in the U.S. to be able to continue to do business with Huawei, it's calling it a national, an in, a matter of national interest, which was what is also used on the other side to shut them out of the U.S. So again, I don't think it's as clear cut as people want to make it out to. I don't think necessarily we're going to end up with this split. I think what is for sure is the U.S. is going to be bigger, powerful and dominant in many areas and for decades ahead. I think China will be so as well. And I think we're going to have a natural pushback. Uh, I would probably say that, you know, I think in in Asia, there's two major powers right now. And one of them is for sure not going anywhere. Okay, The other one may be pushing further back. Okay, And I think, again, if things are allowed to move gradually, uh, which is more in China's interest, and they will get control of Asia. Uh, they will still have a powerful Japan, um, but they will come to accommodations. Japan cannot move away from Asia. So uh, it has to be a part of the system. Uh, I think as long as the Russia-China, which is one of the major interesting trends, uh, continues to embrace each other to some degree, uh, where interests are aligned, which seems to be more and more specifically as the West is pushing back against both of them, um, that is going to lead to a major Eurasian reality. I think that has some implications for Europe, certainly for the US. Um, so from an investment perspective, uh, there's a lot of things to think about. As I think I mentioned in the last conversation we had, I see a lot of geopolitical aspects building up in the system that is not being reflected in financial markets, which seems to be dancing happily around like, uh, you know, it's a spring day and everything is great. Everything will continue to be as it was. I think there might be a rude awakening in that, and that might be an opportunity to buy into some of these places that has been hugely overvalued. Um, I certainly see none of the major powers stepping back. I think perhaps Europe has a major, is caught in the middle between this, but have choices to be to make, to be able to play on both sides of the fence. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if in a decade or two, you're going to see Europe be more Eurasia-focused than perhaps it was with the Atlantic uh, kind of relationship. So there's some of my takeaways. Uh, I don't think you need to build bunkers, but I think you need to be aware. Um, 
uh, what is actually going on. I think you need to take a longer view on things. And I think it's important to get away from the noise and to try and just think uh, about things from different perspectives uh, and, and come to your own conclusions. All right. At the end of your report, you leave us with a meaty uh, bibliography. Uh, but are there any good authors, analysts, uh, websites, uh, reading material you suggest offhand on China? Yeah. So at the back, we normally have this segment called uh, "Standing on the on the Shoulders of Giants." Um, to kind of quote Mr. Newton, um, which is mainly the key reports that kind of inspired the thinking for. Uh, for this particular writings. Um, so there's a lot to read there. I mean, thousands of pages, I would say. So there's a good place to start. I think what I would maybe do is leave you with a couple of books. Uh, I've gone back recently and read The Class of Civilizations and the Remaking of World Order by Samuel Huntington, which is a very interesting and, and current read. It wasn't well received when it came out in the late 90s, where people thought the world was, you know, all one big happy place. And he came out and said, that's not really the case. And he brings some great historic perspectives into it. So that's a, that's an interesting book to read or reread. Um, I talked about the lessons of history, which is quoted in the book in the report. Um, there's another book by Mr. Kaplan. Uh, that, I mean, I love Mr. Kaplan's writing, both his travel writings and his more uh, sort of uh, ge uh, geopolitical writings. But there's one called the, the Revenge of Geography, which I really like. Um, has some good China bits in there, some good Eurasia bits. So I think those are a couple of good summer reads or rereads um, to kind of get into. All right. It's always great to talk to Sune Sorensen from Librarium Associates. Be sure to check out his valuable Twitter posts at the Twitter handle at Librarium Views, uh, as well as the research he produces at LibrariumAssociates.com. You'll find in the description uh, of this podcast the, the link to download this report or uh, through the website, you'll be able to contact uh, Sune to, to get it from him. Um, any other website that I missed? I know those are the, the key points. I would just add that if you go onto our website under the research part, you can request access to all our future reports. So uh, we do this quarterly thing around the world in eight or so pages, which normally extends well beyond eight pages, I must admit, these days. Um, but we have one coming out in a week or two, if I can get it finished. Um, and again, if you subscribe there, you will have access to our public available reports as they come out. All right. Thanks again. Absolutely fantastic. Have a great summer, everyone. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast and interview. I would like to remind you that our website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and you can sign up for our mailing list that goes out each weekend with the latest podcast and a long collection of important news headlines. It's good to sign up for the newsletter in case we experience censorship and deplatforming. You can help the Geopolitics and Empire podcast by subscribing to and interacting with all of our channels such as YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Gab, Minds, and Steemit. You can also help us by leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platforms such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, Spreaker, and so on. Finally, if you value our work and our mission and would like to see us continue interviewing experts from across the political spectrum, please consider leaving a one-time donation via PayPal or Bitcoin or becoming a regular monthly supporter on our Patreon all the links can be found on geopoliticsandempire.com. Thanks for listening.